Imagine for a minute if you turned on the TV this morning and found a popular televangelist. You might hear something like this. I'd like to tell you about a new foundation. It's the PRF, the Pastor Ron Foundation. If you just give generously to me, I mean mean the foundation, you will be blessed beyond compare. This is God's economy of giving. Being broke or in debt is no excuse not to write a check. In fact, it's an ideal opportunity. For God is especially generous to those who give when they can least afford it. He'll give you thousands, hundreds of dollars, hundreds of thousands. In fact, He'll give you millions and maybe even billions of dollars. Get Jesus on that credit card. This will serve so many purposes. (laughs) Did I hear an amen? (laughs) This this will serve so many purposes for God, like a $100,000 motorhome for my pets so I don't have to worry as I travel to serve others. Speaking of travel, I need you to give more so I can buy a jet. Yes, I already have three. But this is for the sake of evangelism so I can get places quicker. I need you to sacrifice so I can get the Falcon 7X that God asked me to believe for. I'll even give my oldest jet to charity. So if, if we can get $54 million by the end of July, it's, it'll be great. I, it's okay, though. I won't personally own the plane. The foundation will. If Jesus were on earth today, you think he'd be riding a donkey? In fact, Jesus was actually a man of means. John 19 tells us that Jesus wore designer clothes. Don't you remember the purple robe that Christ's tormentors wrapped around him before the crucifixion? I mean, you don't, you don't get that stuff off the rack. No, this was custom stuff. It was the kind of garment that kings and rich merchants wore. You know, Pastor Ron Foundation viewers, if, if you, you'll reap a windfall. You, and, and if you don't, then you must be doing something to stop God's blessing, like not giving enough. Ever heard anything like that? For those that are visiting with us, that's not what we normally say. (laughs) Unfortunately, almost every part of that script I got out of actual text in the last five years from TV preachers. And it was sickening, quite frankly, to put that together. And my heart struggled with that. It was hard to even to, to read, and I probably didn't read it as seriously as they would. Because it is so wrong to use money or to use God for the sake of personal gain and personal wealth and personal money. But that is the environment we are in where there are people out there that abuse the spiritual privilege of leadership and abuse the position that they have to try to gain more and more from people, to try to steal more and more from people so they can have a better life, so they can have more of what they want. And so sometimes churches will shy away from talking about money because we don't want to be seen as those people. So we're just going to acknowledge that at the beginning because that really is a description of how the Pharisees viewed money and the description of where Jesus is going to go for the next chapter. This week and next week, we'll be talking about money. And Jesus is going to address how do we use wealth? How do we use what God has given us? Because everything I just said wasn't for the kingdom of God. This was for a man or a family to have what they want. Now, this isn't just a call for spiritual leaders to use money wisely. It's a call for all of us to use wealth wisely. For all of us 
to understand that how we use wealth actually matters. If we look at our checkbook and, and where we spend our money, that probably shows us where our values are. And our values are the heart of discipleship. And so Jesus talks about money. We've already talked about it a couple times in Luke. And as we go through Luke, we again have him coming back to money because it was a problem of the time. The Pharisees would sit in the temple and watch how much people gave and gave status to those that gave more to them. They would have the finest things and they would have all these excuses. They had an excuse for not supporting their parents and using more money for themselves. They had an excuse to have the finest things, as we'll see today. Excuses to get around God's law so they could have more of what they want when they want it. And so as we're on our way to the cross and on our way to Jerusalem, Jesus continues to teach about discipleship. And to a disciple, we need to be considerate and and thinking, how do I use my money? Is it even my money? And the question today is, do we love God or do we love money? Which one do we love most? And we can tell by how we use it. Now, remember the background. Last week, we talked about the prodigal sons. And we talked about seeking the lost. And the Pharisees, really, Jesus was comparing them to the older brother who appeared righteous, who appeared like they were following the law. But when it came time to seeking the lost, no way. When it came time to using some of the the funds, because now they had all the inheritance, and when it came time to using some of those funds to celebrate the younger brother coming home, they're like, no, 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 that's squandering my money. Dad, you're using my wealth on my brother who walked away, let him have what he deserves, and stopped celebrating. And so we see this heart of the Pharisees, a greedy heart, a heart of self, self self-centeredness. They had money. They craved it. They loved it. They used it to advance themselves. But they didn't give intentionality to how they were using it for God's purposes. Mostly because they believed they were the ones that owned the money. And it should be about their purposes. So as we come to Luke chapter 16, we begin to address that those issues about money. And Jesus is going to give us some principles. And we're going to look at five principles about money today within our points. And we're going to look at really an odd parable. An odd parable that people have struggled to figure out what it means and how to apply it. And we're going to wade through it and try to, to figure this out. But if you come away with anything today, it's that a faithful disciple wisely uses their money and possessions for eternal purposes. If you don't come away with anything else, a faithful disciple wisely uses their money and possessions for eternal purposes. Don't worry, it's not a call for the Pastor Ron Foundation. And we'll get there. But, no, not to the foundation. We'll get to addressing what that means. My last day. (laughs) Because I would hope if I actually said something like that, there would be a line of people saying that's not right. It's not biblical. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be in trouble. So turn with me to Luke 16. Let's have some fun with this. Not be afraid to talk about money because it's a chance to look inside and say, how are we doing? And this is something that I really actually don't mind talking about because I see so many people at Village using their resources for the kingdom of God and very intentional about doing it. So this is more of a reminder, a checkup. But it's a good reminder because in this world we live in, the love of money and the thirst for money and and stuff and what we can accomplish is everywhere. 
And so that insidious idea has to be held at bay and kept in check. So Luke chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 today. And we'll be looking at how a faithful disciple wisely uses their money and possessions for eternal purposes. And the first point in your notes is that we're going to talk just about the parable. It's a strange parable of the unfaithful manager. The strange parable of the unfaithful manager. Now, as we're about to read it, this has traditionally been a very difficult parable to interpret because we have a man here who is dishonest that somehow uses money in a strange way, possibly a dishonest way for his own future, and he's commended for it. And so there's all kinds of ways we can view this that perhaps Jesus is using this as as an example of being shrewd with your money, but not necessarily talking about dishonesty. So he's commended for his shrewdness, but not for his dishonesty. And that's been the traditional approach. I I think that 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 suffers with the commendation, and I think there's better explanations. Because another explanation is, is to think about this as an opportunity, or to think about the money side of these transactions as including an interest and a commission. And we'll talk about that as we go through it. And that this, this, this steward was dishonest, but then he's manipulating things in a way that is for his own gain, but is technically within the law. And I think that's a better way of viewing it for what Jesus is trying to point out about the Pharisees as well. Ultimately, I think this is a stinging rebuke of the Pharisees' love for money. And we're going to see that as we go through. The, the end point of the parable is use our wealth for eternal purposes. So let's go through it and, and just unpack this in verses 1 through 8a. If you don't mind writing your Bible, I would put a line right after the first sentence of, of verse 8 because that's where the parable ends and the explanation starts. But it starts with, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now we want to understand what's happening here. The manager here, some of your translations will say steward. And this was someone that a wealthy landowner of the time, someone that they would put in charge of the land and of the household. We know that Joseph, when he went to Potiphar's house, he became the steward of the house. And this was the man that would manage everything, especially in an agrarian society, they would manage the tenant farmers on the land and all the contracts with them. So the master could be off doing whatever he needed to do. And this person was responsible for all the affairs. Now, for whatever reason, we find that he's been dishonest. He's squandered, right? And you see that in the verses, the rich man who had a manager, charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. That word for wasting, if you remember last week, is the same word that is, we call prodigal. It's the same description of the younger son and the prodigal sons. He was out squandering or wasting. And so you could call this the prodigal manager, the wasteful manager. And so he's been dishonest with the master's funds. It's not his funds, but somehow he's forgotten that. He's like, master's away? I'd like this. I'm going to buy this. I'd like this. I'm going to buy this. You know what? I'm going to charge a little bit more here and pad my pockets. And he's been abusing the privilege of the position he has. And right from the start, we should begin to see the parallels with what Jesus is trying to teach about the spiritual leaders of the time. And so he's thinking these are his possessions. We go on and and we see in verse 2 the result. And just Jesus is setting up the story. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? 
Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, charges must be credible because he's just losing his job. And this is you get called into your boss's office and he says, okay, I found out some things you're doing. I'd like you to clean out your desk. There's an escort there. You're gone. That's the idea. He's fired like that. Now, what he's asking about an account is the, the steward now needs to put the books in order and get the ledgers together and give the ledgers to the boss. It's not as simple as hitting send on QuickBooks that we have today. And so they had to put all these things together. He had to get the accounts in order so he could pass on his job to someone else. And so this becomes an opportunity for this steward because the steward's trying to figure out what to do. And, 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 and so in this process of getting the books together, he hatches a plan and, and he has an idea. And we see that in verse three and four. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. What do I do? And and, and you you can see the dilemma. He he doesn't like to work. Whether there's a physical reason, probably more, he just doesn't want to go dig. He doesn't want to do hard work. He's had it easy all this time. He's, He's too prideful to beg. And so he's out of work and wondering, okay, I've got to figure something out. And in verse 4, the light bulb goes on. He's like, I've got it. I've got it. And, and the way that Jesus is telling this story, it's an aha moment. I know what I'm going to do. He says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And he's figuring out how do I plan for my future? How do I take care of myself in the future with what I have now? And, and he has this plan. And in 5 and 6, this plan unfolds. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And, and the idea here is he's, he's bringing in the debts and he's adjusting the payment, probably getting the money right then to give to the master so he looks good. But, but imagine what kind of favor this incurs. Now, now we look at a hundred measures of oil. We're like, okay, a hundred bottles of oil or whatever. This would have been olive oil. And this would have been about 875 gallons of oil. This is a large amount. The yield of 146 olive trees in a year, in a season. Now we've been to some olive gardens in Israel and, and you maybe see 30, 40 trees. So this was a large amount of oil. It would have been three years wages. And he cuts it in half. That give you some favor? Yeah. And, and so he cuts that in half. And we see it again in, in, in verse um, 7. And he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And, and again, th- this would have been even more, maybe eight years wages. Hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill. Write 80. So he, this guy only got a 20% discount, but the assumption is they're not talking. Because, hey, a 20% discount is better than nothing. And so the implication here is he goes down the line of everybody that owes the master money, and, and he does this with everybody because he's thinking, I am going to do something now that is going to help the future. Now, there's all kinds of de- debate. Is he, is he stealing from the master here? And we don't know for sure. Possibly. 
he's stealing from the master, although I think it's really odd the master would con- con- commend him even for his shrewdness if he just lost like four years of wages. I, I think what is more likely and more possible, we don't know for sure, but into all of their dealings with, with debt, and in this case, remember, he's dealing with tenant farmers, and so the master would loan money for the crops, and then he'd get money back. Now, Israel had a law on the books that, that God had given them that said, you can't charge interest. That's usury. Well, any good businessman is like, why do I loan money then? Why would I give you something and not expect something in return? And to God, it's like, maybe love one another, maybe be community. But for them, it's all about money and it's all about what they can get. And so what a common practice of the day was is you could loan money, but if you took the payment back in some sort of commodity, oil or wheat, then you could just set that amount as a greater amount. You could build in or bake in interest into this, and it's not technically violating God's law because it's not a money repayment. Do you see how they were legalistically getting around the heart of God's law? And I think that's most likely what's here because of what he's been dealing with in chapter 15 with the Pharisees, what he deals with in the conclusions of this. I think he's pointing out, you've been legalistically disobeying me. You haven't been following the law. In this case, the steward then goes back and and he's technically making it right. So what can the owner say? The owner can't go to the magistrate and say, I'd like that money because then he's admitting that he violated the law and he charged interest. Another possibility here is, and, and, and I think it's probably a combination of both, probably the steward has also baked into this a little bit of money for himself, like the tax collectors did. And so what he's giving up is the illegal interest and his own commission here. And so he's giving up some of his money to secure a future for himself. Now, the master can't be happy about that, but he commends the shrewdness of it because the master can't do anything about it. Otherwise, he looks bad. Now, now in the end, how does this also make the master look to the, the tenants? He looks like a hero, right? And so not only does the steward get favor, but the master looks like this generous human being who simply gave up the illegal money he was charging on top of everything. Or the steward was charging on top of everything. And so really when we think of this, this isn't, this parable, Jesus isn't saying this is how we should act. And that's sometimes the trouble with this is we're like, okay, so I should cheat people for the future. I should cheat people for God. Don't go home with that today. It's not what the parable's saying. And we're going to see that in the application. In the beginning of verse eight, and this is part of the the parable and and. And there's a lot of technicalities of how we come to some of these conclusions. I'd love to talk with you later. This isn't the the forum for that. But that first phrase is really part of the parable. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master of the house is still part of the story. This isn't Jesus commending him. It's the master commending him for his shrewdness. Okay, that was a good move. Can't say anything. You outwitted me but I see how you secured your future. So that's the parable. Second half of verse 8 on, we get the the application of the parable. And this is where really the heart of the morning and where I want to spend the most time is, okay, what does this teach us about use of resources? 
What does this teach me about how I spend my money this week? How I approach wealth this week? And so we see from, from the second half of eight all the way th- through verse 13, a number of principles that we'll unpack. And, and the first lesson there, and this is, comes from verse one, that, that he's a steward and, and verses 11 and 12, all we temporarily have belongs to God and we are stewards of it. And this is a, a, a big picture, a big idea that if we can get this in our minds, it helps us understand how we deal with wealth to understand None of it is mine. Every penny in your bank account, not yours. The cars you, you own, not yours. The house you own, not yours. The three jets you own, not yours. Talk to me. We'll, we'll, um, no, just, I have a foundation that might be interested in one. No. <laughs> but when we start to see ourselves as stewards... Now we have a different approach to money because if I realize every penny in my checkbook actually belongs to God and it's simply on loan to me, I have a different responsibility to that money, right? I have a different way of thinking of that money. In fact, in your notes, I I put money is a blank. Money is a responsibility. It's a responsibility because we are but stewards of it. Most of our problem with money is when we begin to think it's ours. And when we begin to think it gives me what I want. The stuff I want, the experiences I want, the power I want, the life I want. And so then we get into the cycle of I just need a bigger car. I just need a bigger house. I just need a bigger ex. I just need a better job. And we get into this cycle that is really chasing money and what money provides When money is just a a resource, it's just something on loan from God. And we see in this story that money is a test of our character. It's a test of our values. It's a test of our stewardship. We'll get to verses 11 and 12, but I'll, I'll, I'll just read them quickly now. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what In that which is another's, we're stewards, it's all God's, who will give you that which is your own? And we see money is really a test. Okay, where am I at with God? How how much do I love God? Do I love Jesus most, like we've talked about the last few weeks? Well, do I love him with my money? Do I love him with my possessions, with my stuff? Because as stewards... My responsibility is to now use my my money for God's purposes, not my own. The owner gets to decide the purposes of what his stuff is used for. Make sense? When I loan my my children money, and we, one of my kids, two of my kids went to um, Knott's Berry Farm with the church last week, and we gave money for, for lunch, and we gave pretty strict instructions of what that money was useful for. And, and praise God, they followed it. And, but, the reason they did is it wasn't their money. It was our money, and so they followed our instructions, our purposes for it. They did come home and say, can I have the rest? <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. Am I using my money, God's money, that he has given to me for his purposes? See, God doesn't expect us to be cul-de-sacs with our money. He expects us to be conduits. You catch that? 
We're not cul-de-sacs where it ends. If you think of a cul-de-sac, it ends and, hey, it's here. I'm the destination. Thank you, God, for your blessings. Everything he's given you is to be used for his kingdom, to be funneled, to be used for his purposes. Conduits, not cul-de-sacs. We've been entrusted. This is so counter to our mind, 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 mind culture. For those of you that remember Finding Nemo. And, and we have to fight that. And this idea of stewardship is the, is the primary, the foundational principle of how we fight this. Everything we have is from God. And it belongs to Him. Martin Luther said this. This is a long quote, but it has so good. Therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel, a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. That would be a little weird at a hotel. Just so sh- should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus, the life of the Christian is only a lodging for the night since we have here no continuing city, but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. Isn't that idea of just temporarily staying in a hotel really helpful? And and again, so much goes into this foundation of we're just stewards and everything we have is on loan. Part of that foundation is my life here is temporary. This isn't my final home. If you're a believer, this isn't your final home. We have a permanent home that's coming. So, so really, is this where we want to amass our wealth and our stuff and enjoy it for a vapor? No, we're just travelers here. We need to think of how can I use whatever I have for the king? So then we get to, that, that's the big picture, the big principle. But getting to some of the, the specific principles, the end of verse 8 there says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Ouch. And what Jesus is saying, now this is now Jesus' words, the sons of this world are those that don't know Christ. They're just part of this world. And he's saying they're more shrewd in dealing with this generation than Christians are sometimes. And the admonition here is, is letter B in your notes. We're to act with discernment and wisdom in the management of our, or rather his, resources. We are to act with discernment and wisdom in the management of our resources. This is sort of a slap in the face that says, don't waste your money. Don't be stupid. Okay, if you get an email that says someone has a dying relative in Nigeria, and if you just give 2,500, you can get 10 million. Don't do it. I, I know those are silly things, but Jesus is saying, as Christians, as believers, we need to be smart in this world. It's a shame that the world is smarter about how to deal with money than we are. And so this is just a very practical, let's act shrewdly, let's act wisely with what God has given us. Again, the foundation is, it's not my money. And so if all this is on loan from God, shouldn't I use it the wisest possible way? And so it is wise to think of the future. It is wise to plan for retirement. It is wise to, to, to have a financial manager sometimes. We've taught Dave Ramsey's financial piece here. We've gone through the treasure principle because we're called to be wise with our stuff. 
You know, there are, there are lessons here about what we spend money on. We can foolishly spend money like that. It's amazing how fast money can go, right? I just walk into Costco. And you can go in expecting to spend $20. I don't know if they have any items under that, but, um, you can walk into Costco expecting to spend $20 and $500 later, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, we walk out and we have our three items and, um, but we're set on toilet paper for five years. Now, now that might be wise and you might be doing the math and, and, but, but there are things we spend it on that just aren't wise. And Jesus' first call is, be smart with your money. Be shrewd. Do what it takes to understand things like 401ks, to understand things like savings accounts, to, to, to plan for the future. And there's a little bit of sting there for the disciples. Even the world gets this, he says. So why can't you? Be as wise as those around us. Be smart in business. Wise in financial dealings. Some of you have run businesses or you do run businesses. Be wise with that. Don't just spend on on whatever, but think through, how can I best use God's resources for this business? And maybe that is to generate more resources that you can use for the kingdom. But if this is God's money, and it is, then I'm to be wise with it. And so verse 8, the the second half of verse 8 there is really, we need to act with discernment and wisdom. And if we don't have that financially, we need to get help. Spreadsheets are awesome, by the way, but that's, um, that's just me. Letter C then goes into what we see in verse 9. And this is where Jesus turns it and says, it, it's not just about being wise with your money for you, though. It's not just about getting more stuff and having a better, bigger checking account and having a better 401k. This is about how to use it for eternal purposes. And let me, let, let's go through 9. It can be confusing as you read it. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal, into eternal dwellings. What he's saying here is he's, he's turning this to say, don't just have an earthly perspective on your stuff because it's God's stuff. You're stewards of it. Have an eternal perspective. So let her see there, intentionally use the wealth God has given you for eternal purposes intentionally use the wealth God has given you for eternal purposes. Now now notice, verse 9 is not a prohibition on wealth. God blesses whom He chooses and He gives wealth in places where He knows it will be used for His kingdom. So this is more an admonition of how do we use it? How do we use this for God? Now, when you read and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth... A better translation is that of that is just worldly wealth. It's not saying you got this by dishonest means. But just the stuff of this world as opposed to the eternal. Use the, this worldly stuff for the kingdom of God. Now, the verse, you might say, okay, what, where do you get all of that? Make friends for yourselves by means of this world's wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? The question you should ask when you read that is, is, well, who are the friends? And and it answers it by who can receive you into eternal dwellings. And and so this is a phrase that they would use often for God. 
And it's referring to God. And, and some have said maybe those in heaven and those that you'll see in heaven. And I think that could fit there. But who will you see in heaven? Those are the people that you should be using your wealth to, to be part of their lives, to aid and assist. And so the, the disciples would have understood this as how can I use my stuff here to help people that I'm going to see in heaven? Now that means help people hear the gospel so that way they'll be in heaven. And they may, they, I, I love the idea of seeing people in heaven that I've had a part in their salvation. Now I don't save them, God does. But as his tool to be able to see them and, and, and to, to, to have that relationship. And that's the idea here is are we wisely using what we have here for the future? The unfaithful servant, the steward, he shrewdly used what he had, even if it meant cutting off his own money and what he was supposed to get to secure a future. And now Jesus is turning it to say, are you using what you have here to secure a heavenly future? Are are we going to see more people in heaven because of how you use your wealth here? Are we going to see other believers in Christ who were struggling that you helped and can say thank you to you? Are we using this wealth for eternal purposes? See, the steward in the story was using it to make his life more comfortable. I don't want to work, but hey, if I've just given you a year and a half wages and I knock on your door, chances are you're going to let me sleep in the spare bedroom. I've earned that favor. Jesus is now turning that to say, if, if he can be that shrewd with earthly relationships and money, isn't it far more important to do that with heavenly concepts? Are we enhancing eternal relationships? Are we helping people come to Christ? Are we building into those that are part of the, the family of God? Life is short, and only what is eternal lasts. And we, we talk about the bumper sticker He who has the most toys wins. No, no. He who has the most toys still dies. And then his kids fight over what he had. No. We can't take it to our next life, so let's use it well here. They would have understood this as a call to not be selfish with money, but to use it generously to build into other people. Now, now, I, I need to say a couple things. These two concepts go together because Jesus isn't saying to be unwise with your money so you can't live. Yes, we, my family enjoys eating from time to time. And I should be wise enough with money to provide that for them and to provide shelter. But is the bigger picture of what I have directed toward the master's purposes? See, even providing for my family brings glory to God so that they can then serve God but how much money do I really need to live on? We need to be prudent and wise in how we live so we can be generous with God's money. I can make purchasing decisions this week that preclude me from being generous for 10 years to come. Right? Credit is easy. Credit is nice. I can get what I want now. But having an internal steward's mindset says, if I, if I buy this now and I have payments for the next 10, 20, 30 years, will this keep me from being generous and using some of that money for the kingdom of God? Now, the balance here, here is there are some things we do buy. I, I own a home. Well, the bank owns part of it. But um, I, I'm working on owning a home. And, and that 
is a wise use of money because then we can use our home for ministry. Uh, 30 of you were over in our home this week and we had a great time. But am I buying such a home that I can never be generous to someone in need? Because now I have $4,000 a month payments and my, my salary doesn't support that. And so it's, it's thinking through carefully how can I make sure I have the resources for God's purposes? How can I be generous? Are we as wise with our money for eternal purposes as the world is for secular purposes? And, and, and if you compare these verses together, one of the, the authors said, the sons of this world show more concern and shrewdness taking care of their earthly well-being than the sons of light do their eternal well-being. Ouch. That stings, but it's a great reminder. Am I as diligent and intentional with how I use my funds for the kingdom as my neighbor is about his 401k? For that matter, as I am with my 401k. Anyone check their retirement sometime in the last three months? I have. I'll be honest. We look at that. We look at stock markets. We look at how things go. And sometimes that can be consuming. But am I as focused and do I plan as much for how I'll use my money to to reach others for the gospel, for the kingdom of God, as I do with if I put this much money away, I'll be able to retire at, at 85? Do I spend as much time worrying and concerned about the use of my money for the kingdom as I do about my as as I do for my future? As I do maybe for some of the toys that I want, the jet ski or or whatever. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but overall are we using all these things for the purpose of God? Are we developing treasures in heaven or is it limited to treasures on earth? How intentional are we with our money? Now, uh, this is a great chance to just pause for a moment. You can come away with this thinking this is all about tithing, and it's not. That would be taking a, a really almost hands-off approach. I'm just going to give money to the church, and they'll use it for God's purpose. Now, praise God, we, we, we are very transparent with money, and I pray we are using it for His purposes But this is far bigger than just the concept of tithing. We can't just write a check and say, oh, I've been a good steward for God and I don't have to think about it anymore because now I've compartmentalized my money into this is God's, but this 90%, mine, 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 mine. The issue is, how can I use everything God has given for him? Now, tithing is biblical. It's something that should be part of being a faithful servant and a faithful disciple. I get that. I'm not saying don't tithe. But this isn't a call for more tithing money. This is a call to say, how can I use what I have in ways that you see, in ways that you're personally involved in? Maybe you have neighbors next door that don't know Christ, and you say, I'm going to take them to Red Robin for dinner tonight and get to know them. That's an awesome use of money for the kingdom. It's not giving it to the church, but that's using it for God's purpose. Do you see where I'm going with this? Maybe it's um, years ago when when Susie, before kids, Susie and I had Dodger tickets, Dodger season tickets. We intentionally got four 
for the purpose of we could invite people, either from church or people that didn't know Christ, with us, and then they were stuck with us for three hours. It was awesome. And there's just not a lot enough happening on the field to talk about that the whole time. And so you had a trapped audience. And, and that, that's a way of using resources for the kingdom of God that is thinking beyond tithing. And, and, and we, we have to think beyond this. How can I be generous to those in need? You see someone in the church that is struggling and, and, and has a need, and I know some of you take groceries over to them. That's using funds for the kingdom of God. And, and so this is, this is about personal involvement and seeing every part of my wealth as a tool for serving God, as a tool for advancing the gospel, maybe surprising a missionary with a care package. What I want to do, we'll try this. I don't know if this will work. I just want to stop and brainstorm for a minute. How, what are ways you can think of that you can use what God has given you for the kingdom of God that go beyond tithing? You can talk now. Support Awana, okay? And, and many of you give to the Awana store. There are kids here that are memorizing God's word, some of it because, hey, there's a reward, and I'm okay with that. Support missionaries personally. Absolutely. Give me other ideas. Get real practical here. Because talking about money doesn't, doesn't help us unless we're willing to get real. Buying lunch for coworkers. Yeah, absolutely. You could be developing life-bringing relationships. Now, if you never go anywhere with it, then that, that's different. But intentionally using that to build those relationships, especially if they know you're a believer, that can be huge because you're beginning to bridge some of those gaps and some of those perceptions of what Christians are like. Other ideas? Okay, research what can go into a homeless care package to be truly practical. Some things are helpful, some things maybe not so much. And then make some homeless care packages. Make them with your kids. Our kids in in Sunday school last week made some and and gave them away this week. It was awesome. What else? Okay, investing in home improvements that make your house more hospitable. And so yeah, we all have dreams for our houses, right? But keeping in mind what will help this be used for ministry. Do I need a bigger room for a Bible study? Do, you know, what will help in ministry? A couple more. Let me get back here first. What? Okay, supporting organizations like Open Doors that are getting Bibles into countries that, that no one else can. They're doing an amazing work there. Things like that. What was that? Secret, secret gift card for grocery stores. Encouraging the body of Christ that way. These are all ways to begin to think, how can I use God's resources that he's loaned to me, not just for myself, to give myself a really cool life, but for the kingdom. Do you, see what, do you see what I mean? That this is far bigger than tithing? And, it, and if you come away thinking, oh, Ron just wants more church, money for the church or the, the foundation, we've lost the whole point of the text. 
It's how can my life be in line with the kingdom? Two authors cite verse 9 in quotes. One of them is a familiar quote. Jim Elliott says, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And is this idea of we give away what, what is temporary anyway for the sake of the kingdom. Thomas Adams, a Puritan preacher, to part with what we cannot keep that we, that we may get that we cannot lose is a good bargain. Amen. So how are we intentionally using what God has loaned to us for the kingdom? Verses 10 and 11, and we, we've hit these a little bit, 10, 11, and 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And letter D there is be faithful even in little amounts. Be faithful even in little amounts. Those who are responsible with a little will be entrusted with much. And, and we see this because faithfulness and honesty, they show in our lives whether it's a little amount or a big amount, right? And if we can't be faithful with a little, then why would we be trusted with a lot? You know, God generally tests us with small things before giving us big things. And I'm not talking health and wealth here, that if we're faithful in little things, you're going to make billions. No, actually, it may not have anything to do with money, but more you'll be given more responsibilities for the kingdom. Kent Hughes says, If you have not been faithful with money, with worldly wealth, God will not trust you with true spiritual riches, the care of souls, missions, evangelism, the oversight of His church. Those are the spiritual riches. See, handling wealth is just a preparatory lesson for how we'll handle bigger responsibilities before God. And so can we be faithful with the little? Remember Moses? What did he do before leading a a nation? For 40 years, he tended sheep. Remember David? What did he do before he was king? He tended sheep. And, And how they were faithful in those things was directly equivalent to how God could use them in larger things. You know, we, we sometimes struggle with this. I often hear, but I don't want to start in the mailroom. I don't want to start at the, I have a college degree. I should start as manager. <laughs> Welcome to the world. Get the job in the mailroom, prove yourself and move up. But we don't like that idea of having to be faithful in the little things. We just want the big responsibilities. I want to lead this ministry. I want to do this for Christ. Be faithful in the little things. Start there. How we handle money matters. It matters eternally. So be faithful in the little amounts. Love the story of Peter Marshall, former chaplain of the U.S. Senate. And and one of the senators came to him and said, I have a problem with tithing. He said, I've been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I was making 20000 a year. I could afford to give up 2000 but that, now that I'm making 500000 there's no way I can afford to give up 50000 a year. Marshall reflected on the wealthy man's dilemma but gave no advice. He simply said, yes, sir, I see you have a problem. I think we ought to pray about it. Is that all right? The man agreed. So Dr. Marshall bowed his head and prayed. Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him with it. 
please reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. (laughs) It can go the other way too, where we're not faithful with the big things. See, faithfulness is just part of who we are. It won't matter how much we make. We'll be faithful to use everything we have for the kingdom of God. Verse 13 is the culminating verse, the verse that we have as a memory verse. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Letter E, no one can serve two masters, so serve the one that matters. No one can serve two masters, serve the one that matters. We will always serve one more than the other. We'll always love one more than the other. And and this is a parallel to Matthew 6.24 from the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot love and crave and pursue money and love and crave and pursue God. One of them will be your master. One of them will be your idol. And God wants it to be Him. God is looking for wholehearted devotion to Him and obedience. And if He's first, then everything He's lent me is first. It's, It's for Him. It's to be used for him. This is why Colossians 3.5 calls covetousness or seeking money idolatry because it's something that becomes more important than God. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. See, money will either be your servant in doing God's work or you will be its servant as it controls you. You catch that? Money will be either be your servant in doing God's work or you will be its servant as it controls you. And when we start chasing money and chasing jobs that give us more money and chasing things we want, it is controlling and it is consuming and it will steal your time and your energy in ways you can't even imagine. From there, we have four verses just finishing the section, we need to, to wrap it up. Four verses that are, are between these two parables on money that it's like, okay, how do these fit in? It doesn't always make sense. And, and these are parables that touch into much, or statements that touch into much bigger topics that they would understand. So I'm just going to briefly touch them. We can talk more about them. But number three in your notes, selfish, smart financial management and wealth may impress the world but a steward's heart towards wealth is what God is looking for. I know it's a big, big sentence. Selfish, smart financial management and wealth may impress the world, but a steward's heart towards wealth is what God is looking for. And this gets back to the Pharisees and why I think this, this parable is directed to the Pharisees. In verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they were all about the money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They turned their noses up. Jesus is teaching us about money? Money's our thing. That's the problem. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. See, they would manipulate the law, and so they looked righteous in their love for money, in their tithing, so everyone could see how much they tithed, and in what they did with their money, and, and how they collected money. He says, that's not what it's about. It's not about what men think. And that may impress the world. The world values money. It idolizes money. But God looks for a steward's heart. He looks for a heart that says, how can I use this for the kingdom? See, I I think the Pharisees heard the, the parable and realized it was about them, that they were the dishonest steward. 
that Jesus was calling them out on doing things that were technically legal but were offensive to God. And so they're mad. Jesus says, For what is exalted among men, this love for money, this success, is an abomination in the sight of God. And so then he goes into and confronts their view of the law because they had arranged it where their heart didn't matter as long as they externally would follow the law. And in verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. And and Jesus is saying the law and the prophets is a way of referring to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. That was in effect until now and it's over. That era is over. And he's presenting two eras to say with with John the Baptist, he he introduced Jesus who changes from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And we could spend all day just talking about this. This is a, a huge topic. But I'll just give you something to think about with covenants. A covenant always had a promise and instructions. The promise of the old covenant was the Messiah would be coming, and the instructions were how to live until the Messiah got there. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the Messiah. I fulfilled this. You, you, You thought you were keeping those instructions. I'm giving you a new way of thinking because now I have fulfilled the Old Testament law, which means ended, completed. And so now I've fulfilled the Old Testament law and I'm giving you a new way of thinking that says obey me from the heart. And the new covenant of his blood, which we'll celebrate today, is about the promise of a second coming of Christ. The promise of a savior that is a sacrifice for our sins so we don't have to kill animals anymore. The promise that he is coming back to take us to be in eternity with him. And the instructions are what Jesus will now affirm as this is how you live under the new covenant. And we, we, could, we could go into a lot of details of this. And how do you tell which parts of the Old Testament law, the moral parts, are, are, are still in effect? And it's really, what does Jesus reaffirm? Verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And really he's saying it's easier for God's creation to pass away than for his word not to be fulfilled, than for the promise not to be fulfilled. He says, nothing's going to stop me from going to the cross and fulfilling the old, old covenant and creating the new covenant. It's a promise of salvation. It's a promise and a joy. We can talk more about that, but we need to, to finish up. Verse 18 is really just an example of this new perspective of the law. Of saying, it's not just about this legalistic adherence to the law like you've been doing with your money. It's not just if I just, you know, tithe exactly this much, I'm good. It's about a heart that says everything belongs to God. And he uses divorce and marriage as an example. Something that they would have understood. The Old Testament law, they interpreted it to allow divorce if there was anything that your wife did that upset you. Like one of the, the, the teachers of the law said, if they spoil your dinner, you can divorce. That's pressure. Another teacher of the law went further and said, if the husband found someone prettier or more appealing, then divorce was okay. They were making a mockery of what God intended marriage to be. And so Jesus says, everyone who divorces, this is the, his new new law of the heart, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And he's saying, no, my intention was that you get married, you stay married. 
except for some incredible uh, circumstances of infidelity or, or death, you stay married. This is my heart. You are one. No one separates this. And he's confronting their legalistic interpretation that allowed this to say, no, my heart is for you to, to, to honor marriage. And again, there's other verses on this. We could go into depth in this, but Jesus is using these as just quick hits that they would understand to say the values of the new kingdom have superseded and replaced the values of the old. How you view money, how you view resources is to replace what you've been doing under the law. Are we stewards that say everything I have is God's? I'm going to use it for him. I'm going to be wise with how I use my money to make sure I leave funds to be used for him. To make sure that I'm not living extravagantly with with jets or whatever we humorously talk about. But I'm saying I am going to make sure I use to the best of my ability every penny I can to serve my master. That's where we find fulfillment with our money. Otherwise, money is an empty promise that leaves you, you wanting and hurting. So how are you with your money? Think about that this week. With every penny we spend, am I being wise? Am I using God's money wisely to do what he, he needs me to do, provide for my family, support my family, but then to make sure I'm providing ways to impact people for the kingdom of God? See, people matter. Money doesn't. We're going to go into a time of communion here and we're really honoring the new covenant, what God has provided for us through the death of his son, the forgiveness of sins, the, the ability to be in heaven with him. And this represents a new way of thinking of everything we have to say, I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for me and for what he's done in my heart that I can't help but serve him with my life, with my time, with my resources, with my money. Let's be about the kingdom of God because this is where it started. He secured our place to be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And so today's text is just saying, let's make sure some real practical ways we're sons and daughters of the king and we're serving him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your son, that you were willing to sacrifice and to empty yourself for the sake of salvation, Lord, that you were the, the example of humility and not clinging to what you had, but to be seeking to serve others, to save others. Lord, we acknowledge we could not save ourselves. There is no way I can be, be good enough to earn your, your favor, your righteousness. But the fact that your son came and died on the cross in my place as a penalty for my sin, Lord, that is a beautiful gift that I can never repay. But as a response, we offer ourselves to you. Lord, help us to remember your gift, your sacrificial gift, and then emulate that, Lord, in humility, using whatever we can to also have a heart for the lost, to save the lost, to build your kingdom. Thank you for your sacrifice in your name. Amen.